Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. What I'm about to relay to you is my experience in my own words. This is a reenactment based on true events. Only some names and situations may have been changed to protect the innocent. Who am I? The name's Charlie. Charlie Davenport. I'm a writer. I write horror specifically, and this is my experience with the strange world of the Simply Scary Podcast. We'll start this story out in a dry, airless desert spot about halfway between L.A. and Vegas. A terrible commute, yeah, but a mortgage, new kiddo, and a bank account in the black was more than enough reason to bear the boredom of the two-hour highway run to the outskirts of town. The locals called it the Lebanon Highway. It picked up the name in the 80s as a bustling troop training center. Clusters of white crosses dotted the roadside, the results of soldiers looking for fun and finding the bottom of a bottle. It was almost hypnotic. Add intoxication into the mix and, well, I can't think of any good that could come of that. Each day I drove this parched wilderness and each day it seemed to want to purge me from its expanse. Each patch of black asphalt wanted to burn me with its decades of stored heat. Every ditch waiting for me to fall headlong and become just another abandoned thing. As a cheap alternative to satellite radio, my wife had gifted me a membership to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and my relationship with that collection of miscreants that made up the Simply Scary podcast had subsequently began. It offered a pleasant distraction from the multiple car fires and hockey-stick-wielding vagrants wandering the wasteland, shacks dotting mountain passes alternatively swept by fire and dusted with snow, the tweaking locals, their eyes all alight with the knowledge that I didn't belong in their little piece of nothing. Those stories, 
the ones I listened to and the ones they inspired me to write, were my escape. A release valve at a time where there were precious few outlets. As I began this Friday drive home, I plugged my phone into the speakers and put on an episode of the show before merging onto the highway. Ubiquitous car fires that occurred with startling regularity on this highway were transformed into the works of deranged lunatics, painting with destruction along this road between the fantasy lands of LA and Vegas, immolating its dark miles of the cleansing conflagration. <laughs> you have left behind your safe reality and fallen into darkness. That hitchhiker wearing hockey gear and a captain's hat was transformed into an avatar of the Reaper himself, tending to those souls whose passing was only marked by those tiny roadside shrines. There is no escape, and there is no reprieve. I imagined a hermit with one unblinking eye could even be wandering between the devastated remnants of the shacks ready to trade secrets of this mortal coil for a free bottle of rot gun. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12. The townspeople were transformed into a cult, sharing communally in some unspeakable secret. A mystery that bound them together for all eternity one spot in the middle of this great emptiness. I am GM Danielson, your guide through these twisted worlds of the most disturbed imaginations. The intrepid host began. Tonight's episode is our third in a series of episodes dedicated to one terrifying author and the fear that they can create. Currently hearing the inner thoughts of your very own episode, Charlie Davenport. Wait, what? <laughs> yes, your stories will tickle the corners of our audience's minds with horrors that will seem as familiar as they do unsettling. Your anguished anecdotes will show us the dangers of being considered one of our own. And now, to begin the journey. We've all had that job. You know, the one full of meaninglessness, mind-numbing tasks, and soul-crushing commutes that threaten to sap you of the last of your internal reservoir of strength and turn you into just another corporate drone. 
Isn't that right, Charlie? My foot eased off the accelerator for a second, my brain trying to process that last line. I could have sworn I'd heard my name come from. The blare of a car approaching rapidly behind me jarred me back to the task at hand. <laughs> My, that was a close one, wasn't it, Charlie? And as I watched the other vehicle's brake lights recede into the distance, I had just about convinced myself that moment where I had heard my name had been the effect of some early onset road hypnosis. I waved off the uneasiness, saying to myself, I must be hearing things. Oh, wouldn't that be nice, Charlie? Just a small, harmless moment of madness to break the malaise. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. It's not that easy. Now, as you make your way home, settle in for a long haul, as Jason Hill and Jesse Cornett perform in your story, Management. I woke, slowly, painfully, the sound of a phone ringing. My back ached from being hunched forward so my forehead rested flat against the desk. With a groan that came all the way from my feet, I pulled myself into an upright position. Um... <clears throat> Quality Associates Incorporated. <clears throat> this is... A oh, uh, good morning to you too. Wait. Wait, what time is it? I looked around my cubicle for a clock, but found none. There really wasn't anything on the desk. No handwritten notes. Photos of loved ones. Some magazine about hiking. There was nothing denoting that I had any life outside the work I did in the cube. I looked down at my clothes and I saw that they were all a similar shade of grey to the walls of my workspace. I poked my head out and saw that the rows upon rows of cubicles formed a honeycomb of narrow pathways. In these narrow aisles, dozens of other people could be working, moving about in their daily routines, but I would never see them but for a brief moment as they passed. Though at that moment there didn't appear to be anyone in the office but myself. I found my breathing becoming labored as I considered this idea and I retreated back into my little booth. A feeling of security filled me almost immediately. I sat there for what felt like a very, very long time. Occasionally a printer or some other piece of office tech would kick on for some internal reason. Reason known only to itself. It was then I noticed my computer was locked. Perhaps I'd been working on some project with a hard deadline or, or something when I'd given in to fatigue. I made to enter my password, but I found there was no hint of any phrase or key word tickling at the back of my brain. Would it, would it be my birthday? Am I really that kind of person? It was at this point that Mr. Edwards entered the office. He was a neatly attired man of some indeterminable middle age, 
wearing a double-breasted suit that was a few years out of style. It was the same odd, almost incarcerated shade of grey as my own clothing. I did not recall exactly why, but I knew that I disliked Edwards. Still, I was relieved to have another presence in the office. Here early, are we, Mr. Babbage? That we did not suggest that we were in the same group, class, level. Actually, tacitly stated quite the opposite. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't really sleep. My own voice sounded as though I was making neither a statement nor a question, but some muddled middle thing. Good, good. Dedication is a fine thing. He kept straightening his cufflinks as he spoke, looking just over my head rather than directly at me. Though they say that staying late or coming in early... Which is it, by the way? He didn't really stop to allow me to answer. He only modulated his tone to suggest a pause rather than really allowing for one. They say it can be an early warning sign of corporate espionage. Should we be worried about you, Kyle? <laughs> he smiled. It was as practiced as it was hollow. The translucently veiled insinuation had pushed me back a bit. No, um, no, no, <laughs> of course not. Edwards was a program manager, or at least that's what his official letterhead said. What he really was was a specialist in minute details, an expert at talking to you about them for extended periods of time. He applied this skill in my direction at every given opportunity. That's an eye-catching tie, Mr. Babbage. The tone was friendly, conversational, and at complete odds with the look that filled Edward's eyes. He was a hungry, primal thing that had just found its dinner. A tie. I could admit it was a silly-looking thing. Cartoon frogs, flashing peace signs, playing catch, boating, and a host of other anthropomorphic activities... Um, is there something wrong with it? Well, now that you mention it, I'm almost certain it falls outside regulations. <sighs> he swept his hands out broadly to his sides, and I expected some kind of orchestral swell to accompany the movement. Kyle, this office is a model of uh, uniformity. And efficiency. That's what allows it to exist and gives us our purpose. The efficiency is fed by the uniformity and vice versa. Now certain bright spots of personality and individuality can be considered essential for dealing with customers. That human touch, as they used to say, and without a doubt you are capable of that. However I wish... Has your screen been locked this whole time? Oh, uh, yeah. F funny thing, I, I can't seem to recall my password. I guess I, guess I must have changed it recently. 
He pulled a device from his breast pocket that looked so slick and compact that it gave me no clue to its function. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is ideal. There's a performance appraisal session, or PAS today, and there are still a few open slots. He punched the flat and featureless face of his gadget a few times. You should attend. I wanted to tell Mr. Edwards that it just won't be possible. Simply too much work to do, but I started to feel distinct discomfort in my chest. A thin sheen of sweat appeared almost instantly on my forehead. Why don't you go to the bathroom and carefully splash a little water on your face? You look awful. I made my way to the men's room, passing down the long, practically featureless hallway that separated from our office. The scent of the place stung my nostrils with some accurate chemical. I stood in front of the sink and looked into the mirror that hung above it. My face was indeed a bit washed out, waxen in hue, almost to the point of me blending into my nondescript surroundings. The only hint of color was the tie. Where had I gotten it? As pleased as I was with the irritation it had produced in Mr. Edwards, that really wasn't something I thought that I would have bought for myself. Deep in the armchair of my soul, I have to admit that I'm a pretty basic guy. In my own way, as bland and dreary as the walls around me. Where had it come from? With a lurching tug of my stomach, suddenly I remembered. There had been some woman, desperate and frazzled from the malfunctions and crashes her unit was experiencing. She'd called from Tulsa, or somewhere in Maryland. I, I talked to her through the various processes for an hour or more, and with no result she'd suggested that maybe she could just take a hammer to the damn thing. I said... And when asking myself later why I could not come up with a reason, if you're feeling froggy, ma'am, you can give it a try, but I think it might void your warranty. There had been silence on the other end. Froggy was, as you might imagine, not on the approved list of responses, and for a moment the terrifying notion that she might complain and ask to speak to a manager like Edwards filled me more completely than it had any right to. That comment had, as she said, tickled her pink. We got her unit back up and running again, and a week later in my company mail, there had been that god-awful tie. Frogs of various colors and subspecies engaged in activities, barbecuing, water skiing, across its noxious orange fabric. Wearing it the next day had made me happy in a simple kind of way. Much as a favorite blanket can be a comfort, I imagine. I couldn't really recall anything else doing that for a very long time. I wore it every day for the better part of a month before it had fallen under Edward's eye. I buttoned up my collar and straightened my much maligned tie around my neck so as to be presentable. Having that memory, recalling it had been a strain... 
I was thoroughly exhausted and my vision blurred and doubled for a moment before coming back into focus. I pitched forward and stopped myself from falling only by bracing against the sink with both hands. My breathing shuddered and my knees began to wobble and I would have sworn that I smelled toast burning somewhere. I sure hope it was coming from the break room. I half ran, half toppled towards the door. The effort to do so was tremendous, and whatever reserves or control I had maintained up until that point had completely left me. The hallway carpet provided some cushion from the impact, but I still felt the air rattle out of my lungs and my nose painfully bending against the pressure of my own body weight on the floor. As I lost consciousness, I heard footsteps coming towards me. And then I was dreaming. Dreaming of a great open plain stretched on for as far as I could see. There were no features to the place. There was no landmarks. There were, however, dozens of men and women milling around. They either stood stock still, waiting for something, or simply wandered with no preference for any direction that I could discern. I had been there for some time. How long, I, I didn't know. When someone called to me. Where were you born? A voice placidly demanded from my left. I I'm sorry, did you ask me something? I turned but saw no one. What's the difference between a novel and a book? Intent. I said it without knowing why. I walked in the direction of the voice. What is your password? The voice had no owner, no body to restrain it. What time do you normally go to bed on a weekday? It echoed through the empty place, repeating a dozen times, I tied to no particular direction. What is your password? Define relativity. What is your password? I spun again and again, trying to find the source as more peppered me from all sides. Where are your friends? What is your password? I don't... I, I don't remember. I felt heavy and hot, like boiled meat waiting to slough off my bones. I felt lips pressed right against my ear, brushing the lobes as they whispered. What is your password? Then I was awake and seated back at my desk. A clock and a framed picture of two older people I did not recognize had both been placed near my keyboard. I looked down at my chest and saw that the frogs with their many leisure activities were gone, and in their place was a solid gray strip of fabric. And Edwards was already speaking. So, as a result, you've been assigned a rating of SJDR. He looked up from his device and waiting for me to say something, as though that collection of capital letters should have some meaning to me. <clears throat> oh, 
What does that mean? The appraisal? <clears throat> what it means is that you have a propensity. He said it with the pride of a man that had correctly deployed an entry from his novelty word-of-the-day calendar. For a sensing, judging, disorganized, and reactive personality. In the period of time I was unconscious and then apparently tested, the rest of the employees had filtered in. They were all dressed in a similar hue and manner to myself. Not one of them seemed to take any notice of one another. They were all busy, staring at screens or brushing past each other with reams of paper in their arms or pressing phones to their ears. Well, Kyle? Do you have anything to say? He looked at me expectantly again. I was visibly irked as confusion crept over my features. Appearances are the key to things, Mr. Babbage. Even at your level. To do the job well, you simply follow the rules and guidelines provided to you by the company. However, to truly be a success, you must look the part. These flashes of wasted and misdirected energy, the tie, your desk looking as it does, they all hurt the image of the company. At one time, you know, any of that would have been grounds for dismissal all by itself. Uh, Mr. Edwards, I... Edwards hefted his flat, gray box from his coat pocket and seemed to be testing its weight. He said, looking positively orgasmic as he pressed at a region of the screen... Oh, do be quiet, Kyle. Edwards was officious, snippy, but rarely outright hostile. So at first I thought it had been the abruptness of his manner that derailed my train of thought. However, when I tried to reason with him, I found that I could no longer speak. My mouth hung open, and I heard the muscles of my jaw popping as I tried to force some form of sound up and out of my throat. But nothing came. I began waving my arms, trying to get anyone's attention, but the activity in the office did not seem to skip a beat. Papers were shuffled and phones were answered in unbothered, polite tones. The office door swung open to reveal a man in a turquoise boiler suit pushing a gurney through it. There was something about him that struck me as... as familiar, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. His face was flat in expression, but not unpleasantly so. It was the look of a man waiting in line at a coffee shop, with nowhere in particular to be afterwards. Soon he was at Edward's side, and in standing next to that self-important bureaucrat, I realized why he looked so familiar. Not in the way the others did, with a vague sort of sameness to dress and features. His hair was the same shorn and short length that robbed mine of any definable character. His eyes were the same almost hazel color that I had seen in the bathroom mirror. All except for the clothes on his back. He was me. Sir, this is him, eh? Mm-hmm. And you've attempted the resets? Twice. Twice? Oh, hell. Well, now, that, uh, that's a problem right there. 
Okay, fella. Well, we're gonna get you right as rain in just a moment or two. Don't you worry, none. I had to do this a few weeks back. Even got a change of assignments afterwards. <laughs> it was a blessing, let me tell you. My previously unknown twin moved towards me, placing a hand on my chair and spinning me around. I personally blame the introduction of middle names. It makes them feel as though they're unique. Nothing good can come of that. Jumpsuit Kyle spoke as he dropped his arms around me from behind and proceeded to ragdoll me towards the gurney. I do see your point, sir, but you do have to consider two things. I drove my elbow into his ribs over and over again. He never grunted or even broke the folksy rhythm of his speech, even as he slammed my face down. The pain that coursed through me, chest, bone to spine, scrambled any action or thought I could have attempted. With the sheer number of employees today, the old designation system, well, it just can't keep up. Perhaps, but does a customer in Illinois or Minnesota care if they're speaking to Kyle A. Babbage or Kyle B. Babbage? <laughs> I assure you, they do not. I could not agree more, sir. I could not agree more. Just that the company thinks otherwise. And plus, for all the issues we've had with this model, we've also gotten the most positive customer response for the last four fiscal years straight. Can't say why, sir. I guess we're just people persons. <laughs> well, I don't understand it myself, but the company knows best, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure they do, sir. I am sure that they do. How successful is the program? Mr. Edwards asked. Oh, it's very successful, sir. Very successful indeed. I have not had to do a full dismissal in a couple of months. Oh, about that. How do we do it if needed? Is it just a simple deactivation protocol? Is there an app? Well, most times, sir. It's just like that. Most times? Well, it's tragic to say, sir, with a glitch of this nature now and again, there can be some significant side effects. Oh. Such as? Well, abnormal motor behavior, delusions, hallucinations. We had one unit last week that had suffered a full protocol break in line at the cafeteria. One minute fine, the next ranting about something crawling inside his eyes. It's behind my eyes, he said to me. Ain't it just horrible, sir? Mr. Edwards spoke in the hushed tones of a small boy that had just been told the boogeyman was real. I can't imagine they're allowed to run wild in that kind of state. What do you do when that happens? Oh, you have to do a manual shutdown. Full dismissal, sir. <laughs> Would you do it right here? Right where he stands? Used to, sir, used to, but it seemed to upset the others. 
We just take them down to the old sub-basement now, if it comes to that. Gets them out of sight. It's where the furnace is. (laughs) It just keeps everything so good and simple. Oh, fine then. Something sharp was suddenly at the back of my neck for just a moment before plunging through my barely resisting skin. My chest instantly jerked off the padding of the gurney. My arms and legs snapped up and down like sheet hung out to dry in a hurricane, and my hands twisted into palsied claws. There was a loud crunch as I drove my nose into an uncovered metal portion of the gurney. Don't you worry none, sir. The ceramic substructure's weakest point is the nasal assemblage. Easily repaired or replaced. No extra charge. Certainly. So you're sure you won't have to shoot him? Manual shutdown, sir. And no. I don't think it looks necessary. As the pain grew, I felt a calm start to settle over me. An artificial and horrible deadness. As I slumped boneless on the gurney, it no longer bothered me that the procedure had hurt. In fact, I no longer felt one way or the other about it. The birth date I had never had, the street address I now knew had never lived on. All of that was still there in the whatever-manufactured mess passed from my brain. But none of it was mine. I just dangled there, not saying a word, patiently waited for them to remove the straps. Sir, if you would be so kind. Ah, are you sure? Well, he seems all right, sir, but I'd like to test functions just to be certain. There was a beep, like the others I'd heard, and I knew I could move again, but I felt no desire to. I really didn't feel any particular desire at all. Now you just relax and just let me get that there for you, buddy. Kyle B. touched the back of my scalp and there was a click as the device let go of the housing in my neck. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today 
or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I sat up and I looked at Mr. Edwards and the other Babbage model. You'll be all right, Kyle. I'm sorry, that was a real hard reset, but I'm thinking you're going to be just fine. Mm, may I... <clears throat> may I have some tissues from my neck? Ask and ye shall receive, the man in the turquoise jumpsuit said, and reached into a nearby cubicle handing me some brown paper towels, which I pressed to the open wound. That will heal, of course. Yes, sir, he will be as good as new in no time. Do you feel like taking a little rest, Kyle? The phone on my desk rang, and I slid off the gurney. Thank you, but I think... I would like to get back to work now, if you don't mind. I picked up the line and gave the standard opening from the script. Call of the Associates Incorporated. This is K Kyle. Well, he seems to be getting right back on track there, sir. I, I do believe I will leave you to it then. Um... You are sure, right? At this point, well, we'd know if the process had failed. For a case like this, there are rarely any further glitches. Occasional appraisals and maintenance, of course. Kyle sounded just ever so slightly annoyed, but I could no longer be totally sure. Trying to guess was like listening to a foreign language that I had studied at some distant point in my past. But it does happen. I've heard that from other managers. W what if he pops off again? Well, sir, in the very unlikely case that he... pops off again, you just get yourself on the old telephone and dial maintenance, and either I or someone else from the department will be by to fix it. Actually, are you feeling okay? Sir, you seem a bit jumpy. No, no, I'm, I'm fine. Are you sure, sir? We have another appraisal scheduled at noon. I bet you I could squeeze you in. Yes, Mr. Babbage. Yes, no, I, I know, but it's not needed. If you'll excuse me, <laughs> many, many calls to answer, you know... Of course, sir. Well, I guess I'd better be moving on myself then. You have yourself a fine day, sir. Mr. Edwards scurried away, furiously pushing spots on his great gray box. He did not look back in our direction. The man that looked like me did not walk away but turned and regarded me for a moment. I was speaking with a gentleman from Colorado who was having difficulty with his unit's performance. Something about it crying all the time. 
The customer continued to explain the issue to me, and I looked questioningly at my counterpart for maintenance. The other Kyle Babbage smiled warmly. Hey there, buddy. Little something in the drawer for you. He turned away without saying another word and quickly stepped out into the hallway. I pulled open the drawer of the filing cabinet under my desk and I saw my frog tie laying on top of a stack of papers. I stared down at it and felt an echo. Something struggling to be heard through layers of cotton. I felt an odd swelling pressure filling my chest. Before I knew what I was going to say, I uttered the word. Froggy. What? Have I been transferred? No, no sir, I I'm still here. I'm, I'm sorry about that sir. Yes, sir. I, I believe we can resolve this issue. Yet, yes, sir. Customer satisfaction is the most important thing. I spoke with the man for several more minutes as I felt the change take hold of me again. Eventually, we got his unit back in proper parameters, and the customer agreed to take the satisfaction survey. As I hung up from the call, I let my head dip down coming to rest my whole being against my palms, my elbow planted firmly against my knees. I stayed in that hunched-over posture for a full minute, and then the tears finally started to come. Is corporate life really all that bad, Charlie? You make it sound <laughs> all so dehumanizing. Though I'm not one to judge. I haven't worked in an office in aeons. As the road stretched out before me, snaking towards the horizon, I found myself thinking of a Mobius strip. Already uneasy, I tried to push the thought out of my mind. My eyes flicked between the road and the display on my radio. I was considering pulling off to the side of the road when the puppet chimed in. I wouldn't do that, Charlie. The people out at this time of night, well, they may not exactly be people, you know? In the strictest sense of the word. I looked out the passenger window, noticing for the first time an old beater of a pickup had been keeping pace with me. We were passing through a section of highway that had some massive lights providing pockets of illumination, casting everyone in a yellow onion peel glow. There were four men in the open truck bed, all of them looking like they'd had a rough day at work, all of them staring right back at me. The ancient Ford slowed and afforded me a view of the two men up front as I gained some ground on them. They both glared at me with the same unwavering intensity. I pressed hard against the accelerator, 
the automatic transmission bucking forward like a wild horse. That's right. Just stay on the road, Charlie. Let the shell play through, and everything will be just fine. Yes, yes, and do keep your eyes on the road. Certainly, that was something your mother taught you. <laughs> but that's a bit of a sore subject, isn't it? We will delve into that darkness when we return. Hi, this is executive producer of the Simply Scary Podcast, Jesse Cornett. Now you can experience music and much more craziness from me and my production company, Pleroma Productions, in the future. Keep up with what's going on by following me on SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com forward slash Pleroma Productions dash LLC. You'll get to experience music and much more from the revolving door that is my psyche, along with other treats still to come. You can also keep up with my buddy Archie Carlyle for the lowdown on upcoming material from Pleroma Productions as we lay the groundwork for more important independent entertainment like you've enjoyed here on this show. Yeah, that's right. Just look for me, Archibald Carlyle, on Facebook and on YouTube. Thanks, buddy. And I want to personally thank all of you for being there as fans of the Simply Scary Podcast and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. And now, boys and girls, back to the show. And now, for the next act in your imagination's deadly theatrics. We can all relate to the pain of losing a loved one, when the space that was previously occupied by the warmth of another's love for you becomes vacant. Occasionally, something far more sinister can fill that void. Settle in for fear, Charlie, as the talented Benjamin Lisman performs on film. I don't know how long the film had sat in that box in my family's place. The four rolls had been swept up in a number of small items in my mom's effects, things that I can't explain why we took them. Keys, loose change, Polaroids that had begun to blur with the deterioration of age. Things too small, too transient to have any value, sentimental or otherwise. They were all things that could easily be brushed into a trash bag. All of the big ticket items, as Jake had called them, had been tucked away into all the cut-rate storage facilities we could find around Rhode Island, and it had just been down to a few scraps to be cleared away before the realtors brought the first of the prospective buyers. I had fully intended to leave them in the hotel, to let some poor maid working for minimum wage and whatever tips tourists decided to give her deal with the last of my burdens. However, Ella had carefully placed the bag into her checked luggage, reasoning was that I'd cared enough to take them, and I must have wanted them. It wasn't until we were back in California that I found the glossy black bag crinkling under my wife's unmentionables. The collection of jangly keys, quarters, and... Lost memories took up residence in a drawer right under our linen closet for several more months. 
why she chose to get them developed, where she even found a place that still did that thing, I'll never know. I am by trade and nature a logical man, concerned with all the measurable things in life. This characteristic was a constant source of frustration to my mother, who placed great value on the unknown and unseen of the world. I'm sure she would have told me that Ella, my wife, had taken the bag and had them developed because I was supposed to see them, that it was part of some larger plan. I came home after battling Friday traffic and saw a manila envelope sitting on our dining room table with my name and a note scrawled across it in thick black marker. According to my wife's message, each roll had held only one photograph each. This odd little fact was enough for me to sit down and take a look. We had some of Mom's pictures hanging at the house, the same kind she'd sold at her roadside shop. Ansel Adams-style landscapes and snapshots of small towns, New England, that Norman Rockwell would have loved. Panoramas of the ocean in full roar, tossing fishing vessels into random peaks and valleys. The town commons on the 4th of July filled with bustling crowds of people, carrying plates of barbecue and children filling the foreground as they raced past with their sparklers blazing. Tourists to our sleepy little town purchased them in numbers high enough to cover the heating bills in the winter months and the dark room chemicals she needed year-round. She loved the town and the people that resided there in a way that shone in every one of her pictures. Mom always proclaimed that if you hadn't been born with the good fortune to be from Hanton, Rhode Island, you could at least take a piece home with you. Looking at them filled me with a profound sense of regret. The images in the folder were far different from what I was used to from my mom's lens. The first showed a heavy early morning mist wrapping itself around tall tombstones, monuments to settlers originally from the Plymouth and Massachusetts colonies and the generations of their descendants that had lived and died there, all of them now feeding the soil. I recognized it as the Bicknell Cemetery, right across from the house I'd grown up in, I'd passed by it every morning and evening, looked in at it, sunshine and in shadow every day, more or less for 18 years. But I'd never viewed it this way. The color had been bled out of the shot. At first I thought it was in black and white. The lawn was the only splash of, well, life in it. With all the mist in the air, the grass should have been verdant, but it was pale. Bleached. Brutalized imitation of green. Even still, as I held the picture by the edges, I swore I could almost feel the dampness. My mother had never understood my motivation for moving. She couldn't bear the thought of me living out there. Not just out of Rhode Island, but in California, of all places. I could still remember the phone call where she'd outlined all of the deaths in L.A. County via natural disaster or crime every year. Earthquakes, brush fires, mudslides, and that eternal dryness were as close to her idea of a living hell as she could imagine. I took a slug from the beer, which quickly became a gulp. It was bitter and cleansing. I rubbed my fingers together absently, and I found they were wet. In my opposite hand, I held the bottle, beaded with sweat. Another gulp, and before I knew it, the beer was more than half gone. 
I set the photo aside, feeling exhausted by the effort of simply looking at it. The next photo was of a single mailbox. I didn't recognize it first. There was a long row of trees behind it, allowing no view of what lay on the other side. Across from it, there was another long stand of trees, both sides forming a border to a road that stretched out towards some point in the distance. The quality of the light suggested that it could have been taken around midnight, but as this photo was actually black and white, it was difficult to tell. It was as empty and still as the first photo had been, but I had the sense of an intense sort of life to it, like there was something rustling just around the edges of what it had to show. I still could not place where in Hinton this picture was taken. I wondered for a moment if my mother had gone out of town, taken a photo of some far-off location, like a neighboring village or state. I decided it was unlikely, as anything over a 20-minute drive was, by her standards, a long haul. When I'd invited my mother to our wedding, she was overjoyed. She'd met Ella a few Thanksgivings ago, and had by the end of the meal she'd nodded approvingly. My wife was the kind to speak her mind on all matters, and she was funny when she did it. Traits that bought a lot of stock with Mom. As we were leaving for the airport, and she was wishing us a safe journey, she pulled me in close. Tommy, she'll fit in just fine. Then she smiled warmly at us, waving as we pulled out of the driveway. My heart sank all the way to my ankles. Her initial joy and approval soured when I told her the wedding was going to be in California. My grandmother, who still lived with Mom at the time, couldn't make that kind of journey, and there was no way she could leave her alone. I told her that having the ceremony on the West Coast was just a practical matter. Ella had more friends and immediate family than I did. My family's inner circle had been dwindling for years as my hometown battled through financial hardship. More and more of the year-round residents had pulled up stakes. I had tried to convince her that if we weren't able to find someone to check in on Grandma, any number of folks remaining in the area that owed her a favor or two at least, then we'd do a smaller ceremony in town. Mom had carefully explained that she couldn't impose on anybody like that. How could anyone but her possibly be expected to know the schedule of pills Graham took, what shows she liked, or how she took her soup in the evenings? Tommy? You needn't bother with another ceremony. I felt a dribble of sweat run down my back, and I got up to check the thermostat. Ella had set it to a steady 78 degrees. In a few moments, the house cooled considerably. I pressed the back of my hand to my forehead, and it came away moist. I went into the kitchen to grab a dish towel and another beer. As I came back into the kitchen... The picture of Bicknell Cemetery was face up near the edge of the table. I could have sworn I'd placed it face down. My eyes fell on the photograph of the mailbox, and seeing the two side by side let something fall into place. The mailbox was not the one I remembered from my childhood, that having blown down in Hurricane Floyd back in 1999, but the address printed on the side was the same. 8601 Sekonit Lane. The mailbox was in front of my house. My mother's house. Across from it was the cemetery, but the trees, placed so tightly together, 
prevented any sight of it, even in the bare skeletal state they were in in the photo. Similarly, my house was at the end of the winding half-mile of driveway, very much concealed until you rounded the final bend. My mother had told me when I was nine that the street had been named for the tribe that lived here years before even our family had settled in the area. When I had asked her where they live now, she'd said that they hadn't gone anywhere. She told me that if I listened closely at night, I'd hear them roaming around the woods, angry at having their home taken away, looking for revenge. Oh, how she'd laugh when she'd found me under the blankets that night, the flashlight blazing away and my eyes wide in terror. I looked again at the address on the side of the solitary box. It was very clear, even in the gloom, and I wasn't sure how I could have missed it before. I pulled on my beer, closing my eyes to savor it, and when I opened them, my house was dark. Ella had bought thick, insulated curtains to shut out the harsh California sun. It was easy to lose track of time. I pulled out my phone and saw that it was nearly eight at night. It was also a voicemail from Ella. She was working late, and if I hadn't already, I should probably go ahead and grab myself something out of the fridge. It wasn't a bad idea. I'd sat at the table for just shy of three hours, and I had a sickly kind of buzz in my head. Beer on an empty stomach. Something Mom had always warned me about. I picked up the envelope and saw that there were just two pictures left inside. I nearly got up then. Nearly went to the kitchen and made something for me and my wife to eat together when she got home. Nearly. One of the last times I'd spoken with my mom, she told me that when I came home that year for Christmas, I'd better spend as much time with my grandmother as possible, as it was likely to be my last chance. Well, I'd heard some version of this every year since I could remember, and despite knowing that it was entirely possible, the frequent repetition had deadened its impact. We'd established a leapfrog holiday schedule since we'd gotten married. One year it'd be Thanksgiving at my family's and Christmas at Ella's. The next year the locations would swap. Every year I would get a call expressing the pressing concern of Grandma's mortality. Were those people out there really so much more important than my own family? Was she really going to have to suffer another holiday without her children? This had only gotten worse since Jake had married and spent most holidays with his in-laws after four years. I had finally had enough. I don't remember all the words that were said. I've probably chosen not to, but after many slings and arrows back and forth between us, I finally told her that just because she'd been too scared to go past the town line didn't mean that the rest of us had to die there. My mother grew quiet. I began blathering into the receiver. I was sorry. I, I didn't mean that, but she had to see that she was being unreasonable, didn't she? A marriage was give and take. I couldn't expect Ella to give up her family for mine. That wouldn't be fair to her, would it? My mother's end of the line was silent for a while. And then she said, Well, Tom? It seems you've made your choice, then. Almost a year went by, and there were no calls, no letters, nothing. 
I'd speak to Jake every few weeks, and in between just catching up on what was going on with each of us and what new movies seemed like they'd be worth the price of admission, I'd ask how Mom was doing. And invariably, the answer would be... Oh, good. She, she's good. Uh, still mad as hell at you, Tom, but otherwise, good. He'd ask if I had any message I wanted to pass on. I never did. I slid a photo out of the sleeve, and my breath caught in my throat. The floor on the photo, black and white, just like the last, was littered with debris. Mostly small and distinct items. I could make out scraps of paper in the edges of trash bags that I knew were either filled with clothes that she had lacked the strength to carry up the stairs or actual garbage she couldn't load into her car and take to the dump. There was a small, empty flat of oranges with a graphic on the side that announced they'd come all the way from sunny Florida. Above it stood an old iron stove that had been attached to our chimney once. In the winter, when fuel was too expensive, Mom had burned firewood in it. The ambient heat would rise slowly, and the chill would lift from the house. Mom had said it had been in our family for generations. It was a bulky monstrosity, heavy in weight and covered in fine detailed scrolling that must have been done by some artisan centuries ago. And the photo had been torn away from the wall for some reason. One of its doors hung open in an old ceramic bowl forgotten inside it was visible. When I'd stood in that kitchen in that very scene only months before, the air had been thick with decay and stillness. I could smell it again. I snorted a few times, trying to force the phantom odor from my nose. My grandmother had been slipping deeper into senility. The doctors wouldn't call it Alzheimer's, but Jake told me that she often called his wife by mom's name, or one of her sisters, all of whom had passed away decades ago. As taking care of my grandmother had become more and more time-consuming, other things in mom's life began to slip away. The chickens in the backyard hadn't had their eggs collected in months, and they sat rotting. The smell had been awful. We took away bag after bag of them. The yard work, one of my mother's great joys, had also gotten away from her. The lawn stood as tall as my knees. Branches of trees she'd planted before Jake had been born grew into each other, forming a canopy which denied the flowers below them much-needed sunlight. One afternoon, as Jake and I were having a couple of beers in the kitchen, taking a break from the cleanup, a question that had been knocking around in my head just popped out. Why didn't you help her? Why didn't you? Me? I was in California! Exactly. We never talked about it again. Jake had called me just a week prior to tell me about Mom's cancer. Like most things, she'd just let her doctor visits go by without any notice. When she developed a pain in her chest, she'd put it down to a muscle strain and never investigated further. It was around October when Jake had dropped by to check in on things and collect some of his PlayStation games. He noticed the pain on Mom's face when she tried to take something off the top shelf in the pantry. He'd driven her right to the doctor's office and then straight to the hospital. He called me, but I heard very little of what he said except metastatic, stage four. He'd pressed the phone in my mother's mouth, and she'd said in a parchment, dry voice, dulled by pain medication. 
Come home, Tommy. It'll all be better when you are here. I was in the air when she died. I landed, and there was a voicemail from Jake. It happened about an hour prior. I lined up the pictures in the order they'd come in. The graveyard, the mailbox, and the kitchen. I was nauseous and tired. Looking at my phone, I realized that another hour and a half had passed without me noticing. I pulled the last photograph free. Unlike the others, it was in full color. The man sitting at the table was in a rumpled suit. His tie pulled loose around his throat, like he'd gotten home hours ago and hadn't bothered to change. Two empty beer bottles and a series of three photographs were laid out in front of him. A fourth was in his hand. I dropped the photo to the table and jumped up, fully expecting someone to be there, but I was alone. One of the bottles jostled by my sudden movement fell to the floor and smashed, glass sliding across the wooden floor. I stood there trying to piece together some reasonable explanation for this, but there was none. Slowly, I bent over the last photograph. Where before the man was sitting at the table, he now stood leaning over it. One empty beer bottle sat in front of him, and a series of four photographs were laid haphazardly out next to it. I wanted to pick all of these pictures up, tear them to shreds, burn them. I wanted to get rid of any evidence that they had ever existed. But instead, I sat down and picked up the last photo. I remained very still, not wanting to watch as the man in the photo changed position again. I wanted his world to be as stable as possible while I figured this out. As before, I felt a rising dampness, heard the wind make the woods around the house groan. Insects filled the night with alien calls, and the air became sour, and when I looked up again I was standing in a ruined kitchen filled with garbage. There was an old wooden stove pulled to the center of the room, and next to it was an old flat. The advertisement on the side proudly proclaiming that it had once held oranges all the way from Florida. I heard a door open and footsteps crunching across broken glass. Tom? What's with all this? Tom, are you here? Ella! I'm here! I tried to move towards the sound of her voice, but in the darkness I fell over something and hit the floor. A number of sharp objects poked me across my chest and abdomen, and something rotten squished under my knee. Tom! I realized that the photo was still in my hand. I lifted it to my face just in time to see Ella walk out of our dining room. Where's the broom? There was the sound of a door opening and then closing, and that was the last thing I heard from her. 
I don't know how long I've been here. For the first few days, I tried to find a way out. I pulled at the front door for hours, but it wouldn't budge. I threw that orange box at the window, and after it bounced off, I picked it up and swung it like a bat. My hands ached, but the glass was none the worse for wear. I even tried going up to the second floor, but somehow I always end up right back here. I can set my foot on the first step, but as soon as I lift the other off the kitchen floor, I find myself in front of the stove. The picture of my home back in California doesn't change. I look at it all the time, hoping that I'll see Ella or anybody walk through frame, but it's always just a picture of the dining room with one beer bottle on the table and three photos lying face up next to it. I haven't slept since I got here, in my mind. I've started to make a noise. I don't know if it's crying or whimpering, but I've made it more often than not lately. I don't mind, though, because when I stop and there's no wind blowing through the trees and the bugs stop their piercing chirps, the smell of decay will get stronger in that quiet, and that absolute quiet, and I hear a voice, parchment dry, dull, by pain man. Come on, Tommy, it'll all be better when you're here. Well, that certainly brought the mood down, hasn't it? <laughs> Your tale of loss has given even my cold heart a pang of sympathy. Oh, what did the kids say, Jim? Oh, the feels. Oh, and the subject of children. What a segue. It's almost as though we planned it. Don't. Don't you dare. <laughs> oh, yes. After this brief message, Charlie, we will see what else your warped mind has in store for us. The Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12. Become a patron today and you'll get the extended version of this show. Here's a sample of the extra stories you get when you become a member. What is your password? I don't... I, I don't remember. I felt heavy and hot. Like boiled meat waiting to slough off my bones. Listen, Puddin. Don't call me that! I hate it! I always have! While it was true, even Abby was taken aback by the fierceness of her anger. Become a member today. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash tour to get more horror than you can handle. In every human life, there are seasons. 
we pass from children, jumping at shadows, waiting for us to be left unattended for even a moment, to adulthood, when hopefully we can look ourselves in the mirror. Well, most of us do, that is. And convince the person staring back that there really is nothing to fear. Let's explore your next terrifying tale as Jason Hill and Ashley Tofo perform Little Tommy McGee. From the monitor on my nightstand, I could see my son staring expectantly into the camera above his crib. My wife rolled over next to me, turning away from the unwelcome light and noise. Asked for by name. She was exhausted from earlier tour and soothing the boy's discomfort as his incisors dug their way up to the surface. I grumbled slightly as I rummaged through the fridge and then creaked along to Ethan's room. I inched the door open as smoothly as I could and was greeted with my own reflection. The crib sat in front of a closet with mirrored sliding doors, the sort of style choice that had gone out with the popcorn ceiling and wood paneling. Ethan raised his arms towards me, and as I gathered him up, I tried the bottle and the teething ring, but he only turned his head back and forth in protest. I checked his diaper, but found it dry and clean. Finally, having enough of my efforts, he let on an air raid siren of a wail. The wall between his bedroom and ours was thick, the house having stood since the early 1920s but not so thick that my wife could remain sleeping through much more of this barrage. Listening to us read always had a calming effect on Ethan, and so I carried him to the living room, avoiding all the toys spread out across the floor, and began to look over a small collection of children's books. We had pretty much gotten all of them from the Lewis family next door. They had been lucky and bought their house at the bottom of the market, but with two kids, each one now needing their own room, it was time for them to move on. We'd picked up a load of things for Ethan that day. A radio flyer wagon, rocking horse, a couple stuffed animals. One was a pot-bellied wolf with a red checkered shirt and huge felt triangles for teeth. No, oh, wait until you see what's in his belly. I found a tiny doll with horn-rimmed glasses, gray yarn for hair and a remarkably calm face of an elderly woman that had been swallowed whole. The big bad wolf. Yeah, came with one of the picture books we got for the girls. Creepy, right? <laughs> he gestured over to the knee-high pile of brightly colored books next to a pair of strollers that his girls had long since stopped needing. You guys want any? For the price of a dollar, we got a dozen classics. Peter Rabbit, The Cat in the Hat, Good night, Moon. All stories most folks can remember from their childhood. But now, as I was arranging them on our shelves, I came across one with a plain blue cover that I didn't remember grabbing. There was no title or author listed when I opened it. 
I found that this book had no stamp on the inside of the cover proclaiming property of Emily Lewis, as all the others had. Standing there, desperate for Ethan to stop crying, I decided to give it a try. I read out loud as I settled down on the couch. What you see in the mirror is not all there is. And little Timmy McGee looked at a face that was not quite his. The line was odd, and I felt my nose scrunch up as though I smelled something foul. But Ethan gazed rapidly at the picture open in front of him and drank deeply from his bottle. Seeing that this story held his interest, I kept going, finding myself sliding into that voice I always seemed to use when reading to Ethan. The little man who long ago should have been in bed, or at least that's what mom and dad had said. Could not say exactly what was out of place, but knew in his heart of hearts that this was not his face. The illustration on the page showed a little boy wearing PJs the same blue as the front of the book. He was staring into a bathroom mirror, his face a quizzical blank. His reflection faced him, wearing that same expression. I looked again at the picture and thought that if there was a difference between the illustrations of Timmy and his reflection, I certainly couldn't see it. The artist had drawn Timmy's mouth with a simple black line that pulled down to the right side of his face in a grimace. Sure, it was a crude drawing, intentionally so, but it conveyed pretty neatly that for a kid in footy pajamas, Timmy was certainly dealing with a puzzler. Daddy had looked him up and down and was certain that it was still his son's two feet that stood on the ground. Mommy said he shouldn't have a care, for it was without a doubt his dimpled cheeks puffing out the same air. I smiled at that, but as the previous page glided down, the next revealed Timmy, staring out at the reader with a deep and careworn expression lining his tiny little face. It might have been the early hour, or the fact that I hadn't gotten a solid night's sleep in a while, but it took me a minute of staring at that image before I could put my finger on what was wrong with it. On the page, two sets of eyes stared back at us. Tibby was facing out, looking right at us. And so was the reflection. What? I snapped the book shut and involuntarily flung it to the far end of the couch. After a moment, Ethan let out a confused and wounded wail, and I looked over towards the bedroom where my wife slept. I retrieved the storybook and sat back down, scolding myself for freaking out. Clearly, I had let the sleep deprivation and the absolute stillness of my own house at 3am put my nerves on edge. I opened to what I thought was the same page, but Timmy was once again facing the mirror and it was only his twin, his reflection, that stared out at my son and me. I flipped back and forth thinking that I must have seen it earlier or later in the story, but I just couldn't find it. 
I was certain that there had been two identical faces drawn with matching flat eyes glaring up from the page. Except that identical wasn't quite the right word. Timmy had looked blank, worn the face of someone who had seen too much, but his reflection had been smiling with a wide, wild show of teeth. Its eyes had been alive with the light. As my eyes searched through the pages for some explanation, Ethan's increasing irritation convinced me to begin reading again. The nose, yes, it was mostly the same, and he was certain his thoughts were rolling across the same little brain. His breath was no sweeter, his hair no neater, his eyes were still green, not blue. So what his parents said had to be true. The next page had a reassured-looking Timmy leaning away from the mirror, the worry lines around his saucer-like eyes fading. He leaned back and let out a breath. He was not an Andy, a Gary, or a Seth. He was little Timmy McGee, just as he'd always be. And that felt like a pretty good place to put an ending. All that was left was to drop in a moral about accepting yourself or something like that, and we'd be done with this. Timmy would crawl into bed, and then hopefully so would Ethan. It's good to be me, said the relieved little boy who was still Timmy McGee. But then... There came a tap. A sound against the glass like a little slap. You're little Timmy McGee, age three, and you're just like me. The teeth, the eyes. (laughs) To look too closely is probably unwise. A voice like his cried from the mirror's other side. But Timmy did lean in and saw a smile spread too thin, too wide. There were too many teeth, and it was all wrong inside. Truth be told, out here it's ever so cold. We've been here for quite a while. Please stay and give us a smile. We're full up to the brim and ready to come in and say hello to our little friend, Tim. (laughs) I stifled a yelp as there was a cold splash against my leg. The bottle had fallen from my son's grip and icy milk leaked between its threaded seams. He looked up at me with heavy-lidded eyes. He pressed his cheek against my chest and let out a deep, rattling sigh. My bleary vision took in the clock and somehow two full hours had passed. A moment or two later he was deep asleep and I was sliding the book back onto the shelf with an unmistakable sense of relief. I thought that I could go my whole life without ever knowing what became of Timmy McGee. I moved as quietly as I could to Ethan's room keenly aware of every groan. Rising from the floorboards as I walked down the hallway, which felt like it was a mile long, I had rarely been so tired. My eyelids kept sliding down in front of me during my trudge, and my thoughts moved like greasy sludge. I lowered him into his bed, and I heard a chime as if in my own head. 
I looked into the mirror, and with the dawning fear, I realized I was not the only one here. I counted as the little one began to snore. In the mirror, there was him and me and one more. In my mind, new ideas began to grind. These notions were not mine. They'd taken up rhythm. They'd taken on rhyme. And again, I heard the chime. I shook my head violently, trying to dislodge the strangeness of those foreign thoughts. My knees buckled and I gripped the edge of Ethan's crib to keep from pitching over into it. I'm just tired. Maybe something I ate. I said them over and over again. Anything it took to make the world a rational place again. I looked down through watery eyes at my son who was sleeping peacefully with his thumb in his mouth, blissfully unaware that anything at all was happening. With each repetition, my breathing slowed and my vision cleared. But then, there came a tap, a sound against the glass, like a little slap. I've been standing here, staring at myself in the mirror for the better part of two hours. The sun has broken the horizon and the room is starting to get hot. Normally, my wife would have gotten up to turn the air on, but... I haven't heard her move. It's not like her to stay in bed this long. I can't think about that, though. If I let my focus slip, if I do or think about anything other than looking into this mirror, the rhyme comes back. I have to fight like a drowning man to claw it back out again. And after I feel so weak, like the weight of my own body could buckle my knees at any moment. If I look away, or blink, I think it moves without me. A smile, a twitch, as it inches itself closer, but... But why? I... I have no idea. You see... I didn't finish the book. That damned blue book on the shelf, that damned blue book all by itself. And I don't know the end of the story of Timmy McGee. And I'm afraid that how it ended for him is how it will end for me. Once again, Charlie, I can emphasize. I have my own little one to care for. <laughs> no, I mean my Sumatran rat monkey. <laughs> and having so many mouths to feed, Charlie, can certainly eat you alive. Much like our own intrepid author has discovered. <laughs> As the insanity wrapped up, I had hit the city limits. By ignoring all traffic signs and lights, I made it to my house by the time the last story had finished. It occurred to me that there are no streetlights down my road, so if some deranged schizophrenic 
and his puppet companion were lurking there, I might not even have seen them. The nature of this lunacy stuck in my brain as I parked the car and sprinted to the front of my house. All the lights inside were off, and I threw open the door. Inside, I found... Nothing. Nothing but the familiar dim interior of my own home. I checked every room in the house. There was nothing out of place. No monsters, no madmen. No death waiting with claw or axe. I went to my bedroom and saw my wife and child in our bed. The little one must have had a nightmare or something and crawled in next to mom for a little comfort. What had just happened to me? Had I had some kind of psychotic break? Could someone have slipped me something? I was tired beyond measure, and there were no answers to be found on this side of daylight. I looked at my side of the bed, and without even changing or even stripping off my shoes, I lowered myself onto the sheets and drifted off to sleep. So, uh, is it natural for him to be all distant like that and staring off into space? And, uh, I guess the drool is normal too, right? Well, I guess technically, as long as we get the stories before his brain ceases to function, we are all good. And now to end this mental violation of one of our treasured authors. After a brief word, we will return for the final leg of our journey. Well, howdy folks, the other half here. You want this show to keep going, I know, I know. But we do that with your support. It ain't free, you know. So besides becoming a patron and a member at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com or Patreon.com slash ChillingTales, you might be asking, Hey, other half, how can I support your form of killer broadcasting? I ain't got no scratch. Well, we've come up with other ways to help us keep this show dead alive. When shopping with Amazon, use the link ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash Amazon or SimplyScaryPodcast.com forward slash Amazon and a portion of your purchases go to keeping this Frankenstein's monster pumping with voltage. So remember, use ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash Amazon and SimplyScaryPodcast.com forward slash Amazon when purchasing through there to help promote fan-funded entertainment like ours. Now... Back to the show. You can support horror programming from the Simply Scary Podcast by using the link simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash Amazon in your address bar when planning to do your shopping with Amazon.com. Just a quick reminder that when you subscribe to our YouTube channel, make sure to click on the little bell next to the subscribe button to make sure you are alerted whenever a new video is posted to our channel. 
And as always, we humbly ask that you please allow the YouTube ads to play during our show and to occasionally click on those ads to assert your viewership and to solidify our ability to continue creating content that disturbs you. So, Charlie was asleep this whole time? Yep. <clears throat> Theoretically, Wikipedia says he should wake up tomorrow none the wiser. Should? Well, there is a slight chance he'll be caught in a temporal loop, reliving the delusion of commuting through that endless wasteland trying to get home to his loved ones while being forced to relive the torments of his own imagination. That, or he'll just be super easy to beat at checkers from now on. Oh, oh my. Well, on that note, this is GM Danielson, thanking you for being a part of our little experiment. Stay tuned for what's next, and join us for more mind-altering thrills as we show you that we love you as one of our own. And as we dive deep into the mind of our author pool, be assured that you are just experiencing the Simply Scary Podcast. This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions, email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment LLC 2017. Thanks for listening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.